0: Hi, this is Jeremy McCain with Ridge to Reef, the podcast version. This week, we have a special guest. Well, I guess every week we have a special guest. But this week, it's a really special guest. It's Dr. Sylvia Earle. And I want to give special thanks to Elise Bernal and Jacques Philippe, who has created this Impact Investing Club on Clubhouse. That's right, I know, Clubhouse. It's not a a place, not a a treehouse. It's a clubhouse. And essentially, it's an app where you can drop in and you can chat with other people that are interested in similar topics as you, which is a really great tool. And uh, we brought Dr. Sylvia Earle on this week to have a chat about submersibles, going to the bottom of the ocean, discovering what we have yet to see. And so uh, without any further ado, I'm going to just roll the conversation as it happened because Sylvia will give us some insights on really the state of the ocean and why this is so important. You're listening to Rich to Reef. Uh, You know, for those of you who don't know Sylvia and her work, um, you know, she is an American oceanographer. Uh, she's known for her re- research in uh, algae, her books, her documentaries. You may have seen Mission Blue on Netflix. Um but she often talks about the threats of overfishing and pollution and what that threat poses to the world's ocean. And, you know, beyond that, Sylvia is a pioneer of what mod, I mean, modern day scuba gear is. I mean, you all probably go on vacation and use this amazing uh, technology and you're able to breathe underwater and you're able to see and experience things and, and, um, You know, Dr. Earl has also um, at one point held the world record for the deepest untethered dive. And um, I could go on and on and on. But, you know, I would say that, you know, uh, you know, one of the I think probably one of the the great things like like I said, I, you know, Sylvia, I promise I'm going to let you talk, but. I, you know, uh, I think it was between 1990, 1992, uh, Dr. Earl was the chief scientist at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. She was the first woman to serve in that position. And in 1998, she became National Geographic Society first female explorer in residence. And, um, you know, it's interesting because uh, I'm going to tie this in to Dr., uh, Debbie Rimigasau, the first lady, lady of Palau. She told me, she said, you know, in Palau, Uh, This is a matriarchal society. And uh, even though my husband is the president, the women are the ones that are in charge. And the women stay behind (laughs) until something is not right. And she goes, and the reason why I'm out fighting for the oceans today is because the oceans are not right. And Dr. Earl has been fighting for the oceans. And we have so much to thank her for because um, Dr. Earl and I love something called Prochlorococcus. And that's these little wonderful <laughs> bacterias that use photosynthesis to create every second breath of air that we're breathing right now. So, without any further ado, Sylvia, thank you so much for being here, and, and I, I'm 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 just honored to to share you with all of these
1: wonderful friends. Thank you, Jeremy, for that really generous introduction. <laughs> yes, we share a. I guess, a passion and a respect for the blue. And all of us should. What I find amazing is that here we are on a planet that is dominated by water. All life depends on water. Most water is salt water. 97% of the world's water is ocean water. And we... We have tended just to take it for granted. I think complacency may be one of the biggest problems facing our future, although we should not be complacent, you no. Know, armed with the knowledge that we now have that could not exist when I was a child. We've learned so much, so fast, literally, in the last, well, in my lifetime, we've learned more about who we are, where we've come from, where we could be going, than during all preceding history. When you think about the really smart people who lived before the 1950s, Einstein lived until 1955, but he never got to see what Earth looks like from from the moon. He, He could not, a lot of people imagine, but I don't think he really could Almost no one could believe in in the nineteen fifties that we would have people standing on the moon taking pictures of Earth before the end of the nineteen sixties. The phenomenal insight that should continue to focus our attention on how special this planet is and how vulnerable it is, and how on our watch we have the best chance. That any any generation has ever had the people who are on the planet like right now 2020 <laughs> we should be jumping up and down with excitement because we know what we know and there's still time armed with knowledge to take what we now know and turn from an inexorable decline of the planetary systems that keep us and the rest of life on Earth alive. We have a chance to go from where we are to recovery. And it doesn't have to take like a century or a thousand years because we know what to do. And then have a period beyond that time of recovery when we really make peace with the natural systems that keep us alive. And I mean the forests, the diversity of life, and most certainly the ocean, where most of life on Earth actually lives. I, I, when I was chief scientist at NOAA, the administrator of NOAA, who's a really smart, well-educated oceanographer, but he was not a biologist. He was a rocks and water guy. And he asked me really seriously once, that could it, could it really be true that there's more life in the ocean than there is on the land and I just looked at him because to me it, it was never an issue. The The average depth of the ocean is two and a half miles, four kilometers, about the depth of where the Titanic is. The maximum is 11 kilometers, seven miles down, about as deep down as pl- airplanes fly when they cross the country. You know, you travel at 35,000 or so feet when you travel from new york to san francisco or across the atlantic it's but only in very recent times has anybody been able to go to seven miles down the first time was for about half an hour in 1960 when two guys naturally two guys who (laughs) were able to use the technology of the day like an underwater balloon, a big, well, it looked like a balloon in a sense. It was a big big uh, cylindrical device that was filled with, with ga- uh, gasoline. It was actually aviation gasoline that is lighter than water. It floats, basically, unless you wait it to go down, which is just what they did. There's a little steel ball hollowed out with two, passengers, Jacques, Cousteau, Jacques not Cousteau, he came earlier, this is Jacques Picard, a Swiss engineer, and Don Walsh, a U.S. Navy lieutenant, also an oceanographer, they went for just under half an hour to the deepest part of the ocean, and most importantly, they came back. It was like a, a balloon in reverse. They had to use weights to go down, and then they dropped weights to come back up to the surface going up in the sky you know you you drop weights to be able to go up and you hope someday or somehow when you burn through your fuel you'll you'll come back down to earth power your way down if you have to but they were the first and it wasn't until 2012 that it was possible thanks to the the <laughs> the kid-like spirit and the somebody who's well known in the movie business James Cameron and also well known in the exploration business because he's a fellow explorer in residence at the National Geographic he's actually a kid who wanted to be a biologist and he almost became a biologist but he got lured away into into the other side of his very productive self and became an artist and movie director and Producer, you know, all kinds of extraordinary films. Titanic, one of the most notable, but maybe even more notably, Avatar, and now working on another series of blue Avatar films. But the spirit of exploration, that heart of wanting to know what's down there, caused him to use his own resources to build a submersible big enough for one person himself to go down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, the deepest part of the ocean as far as we know, anyway, in 2012. And now just in the last year and on into this year, here comes an investment banker, Victor Escovo, who is a, also that spirit of exploration burns brightly in him. And he's not afraid to put himself on the line. So he's climbed Mount Everest. He's gone to many, I guess, most of the great mountain peaks around the planet. He's done all sorts of manly, (laughs) exploratory things. And he just said, well, I I think I want to go to the bottom of the ocean. He commissioned the building of a submarine that was able to not only take him there, but to go repeatedly and to take some passengers along, including my friend and dive buddy, the first woman to, first American woman to walk in space, Kathy Sullivan. So she's now the most vertical woman, highest in the sky, deepest in the sea (laughs) not too many people can match that particular rectory but for me and for cameron it may be a little bit for victor as well this is not about making or setting records this is about making a difference it's about scratching that itch you really have to know what's there What's going on? What's around the next corner? What's what's in the ocean? When you know that only maybe, generously speaking, we've seen 10% of what's under the ocean. We've mapped, <laughs> this is a new number. A year ago, I could say with confidence, we've only mapped about 10% of the ocean. But now, because some of the information locked away in military... Uh, <laughs> Databases in corporate databases, oil and gas industries, for example, they've loosened up a little bit, put some of their, their you know, knowledge gained over a number of decades into the common database. So now I can say with some confidence that about 15 percent of the ocean has been mapped with the same degree of accuracy that we take for granted we have on the land, or the moon, or Mars, or Jupiter. But it also means that Mars, Jupiter, and the rest of the planets in the solar system—we, we know more about the configuration of their surface than we do of Earth's surface. Never mind that <laughs> you know two thirds of it's covered with water, and that that water is not just water; it's alive. It's where the greatest diversity and abundance of life actually exists. I personally have been driven since I was a kid. I know girls aren't supposed to think they can dream to be able to do what the guys do, but it didn't really trouble me. I think I had parents who thought it was okay to have dreams if you could figure out how to make them come true. Never hurts to dream. And they never said that I couldn't try, at least. And so when I read William Beebe's book, Half Mile Down, when I was a kid, I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to go see what it's like where it's dark all of the time, except for the flash, sparkle, and glow of creatures like fireflies, like glowworms. But the ocean is where it's at. It's where bioluminescence, living light, illuminates the great depths. But you really don't see it unless you can go there. Now, I like the idea of going there personally, and it really <laughs> inspired me to team up with engineers the way William Beebe teamed up with his ally, an engineer, Otis Barton. They built that first bathysphere that enabled them to crunch inside this tiny little steel ball on the end of a cable that lowered them down a thousand meters off the coast of Bermuda. They were the first humans to see what it was like a half a mile beneath the surface of the ocean. Only half a mile. Remember, the average depth is two and a half miles, 4,000 meters. And they were the first back in the 1930s, before I was born before I guess all of you were born, to be able to see what no one had seen before. You know, you think about all the smart people who lived in times past, Galileo, um, Ptolemy. You think of all the great heroes of science that preceded the 20th century. Uh, And even the middle of the 20th century, you think Einstein never got to see what it was like in the deepest part of the sea or know what it was like from those who had been there. But here's the thing, we know, well you may not know, you may not have tuned in to the news, you may not have looked at Victor Vescovo's images or James Cameron's or Jacques Picard and Don Walsh's records, but I have devoured them. I really am eager to go and take you and the world along, there's no reason why the ocean has to be the privileged area where only a few learned scientists and only a few commercial interests like the deep sea mining interests that are now searching and and scheming to tear up the deep sea floor before we've even been there and understood what the nature of that place, who lives there, what valuable microbes might exist it could solve some of our deepest problems both in terms of medicines and and clues about where life originated or even how do you extract these rare minerals out of the ocean like nickel and cobalt and lithium and and make them into um, something that we could actually use take let those microbes work on our behalf but first we have to go there and find out how they do it and not destroy them in the process of, of, of short-term gain by taking minerals from the deep sea just because they're there. Anyway, democratizing access to the sea I think is one of the greatest cures for complacency about the state of the ocean. Jeremy, you know, once you go underwater, and see fish other than with lemon slices and butter simmering on your plate, a little parsley sprig. You can't look at fish the same way once you've had them looking at you. And you see their faces, get to know their personalities, get to know them as individuals, the way people have gotten to know whales as individuals, as social animals that have language, have communities, they certainly have, have emotions. Do they feel pain? You bet they do. <laughs> How could they not? They're fellow vertebrates armed with the same kinds of sensory systems that we do, but with greater sensitivity for a lot of things that I certainly wish I had, like vision, to be able to essentially see in the dark, to magnify those little glimmers of bioluminescent light and be able to see my way around in the almost dark of the deepest sea. We're, with chemoreceptors, we have smell. I, you know, I love the smell of huh, a forest. I, I love the smell of a wet dog because it reminds me of <laughs> good places and good times. I even like the smell of a skunk because I, I think they're such cool creatures. But for fish, Sharks, for most of the invertebrates, which is most of life on Earth, and most of them are in the sea, they have enhanced chemoreception. They can sense the tiniest little amounts, I mean, little of of chemistry that is a little bit different, that gives them clues about what's going on in their aquatic world. I wish I had... capability there's superpower fish have superpowers so do we our superpower is knowing what we know storing knowledge passing it along from one generation to the next we are the beneficiaries of all that people have learned over the ages we have the best chance right now to take that knowledge and look at the opportunities that are now in front of us with wisdom. I mean, if, if we can say knowledge can become wisdom, we better hurry with that because we, we know a lot of stuff. We know a lot of things, but we have not done a great job yet of connecting the dots and knowing strategically, if we want to have a long and prosperous future, where everything we care about, whether it's music or art or our families, money of whatever you like whatever you care about life itself we have to take care of the ocean and as a living system that is currently in crisis because of what we've taken out of the ocean because of what we've put into the ocean because we haven't heretofore known or if we know haven't respected how important the ocean is to maintaining the planet that works and functions in our favor in a, you know, look around, look at the stars. You want to set up housekeeping there? You want to go to Mars? Good luck, Elon Musk, go. (laughs) Elon Musk, I think has said he wants to take like 50,000 people by the end of the century to Mars. I would like to make my list of those who should go. But meanwhile, I'd like to take care of those who really prefer staying here on home, base, Earth, and make peace with this blue planet. Use the technologies, develop new technologies, gain access to the sea. I would love to take, I've talked to Jeremy about this, let's go down in little submarines. Let's build them. Let's go explore. Let's go be a part of that generation to really turn things around from decline to recovery to let's go. Let's get on with it and it doesn't it's, you know we can do it on our watch we better do it in the next 10 years probably the most important time in the next ten thousand years but we have to take it seriously we can't just say oh that sounds like fun although it is fun we have to realize everything we care about is on the line with climate with biodiversity loss, with upheaval, with poverty, with, dare I say, disease. We know what to do. Jeremy, you've got a brain trust around you. Why don't we engage them? See what can we do? Can we open this up for discussion?
2: I think we all have goosebumps right now. I do at least. <laughs> and. This is so inspiring, um, and and absolutely, I I I think that uh, Jacques Philippe and I wanted to create this space around um, an impact investment club to really explore creative ways in which we can harness capital to uh, support impactful initiatives that are world changing, that protect our species, that protect our planet. So. Um, you know, in the in the spirit, Dr. Earl, of passing down of our superpowers as humans and passing down this knowledge. Yes. Uh, we, we decided to record this session so we can pass down your knowledge <laughs> and and your <laughs> vision. And 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 there are so many amazing brains in, in this room alone, but um, within within our different communities, I think the the spirit of this is really to cooperate and and brainstorm solutions. So Thank you so much for sharing this and and Jeremy and Jacques Philippe um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about Dr. Earl's vision for the democratization of access to deep sea and and the submarines would would you mind telling us a little bit more about what you had in mind for that.
1: Hmm. That's right. Thank you, Jeremy, and all of you tuning in. Well, here's the thing. Building submarines to go not just to a thousand meters using technologies that did not exist when Beebe made his great descent with Barton back in the 1930s, we can go to the deepest part of the ocean with technologies that now exist better than what Jacques, Jacques Jacques Picard and Don Walsh had available to them in the 1960s so the technology for the most part is it exists what's lacking is the will to build submersibles for the purpose of really trying to make a difference of exploring aiming to bring along of course learned experts of course scientists of course heads of state leaders people of course fishermen let's go see this you should go see what's happening to the ocean and and you should understand that when you put a net down this is what the consequences of it are this is what happens when a net stays underwater if it gets discarded and fish keep getting caught and get, you know, it's a great killing machine. It, when you're on the surface, you don't know. You can just ignore it. You could be complacent, but you cannot be complacent once you've seen the evidence and experienced it yourself. Mostly I want to take the 10 year olds and the musicians who act sometimes like 10 year olds, The artists, the dreamers, (laughs) you know, the people who have real vision, who really maybe hadn't thought about wanting to see what it's like in most of the blue part of the planet. I mean, with diving, I very quickly became frustrated with the limitations, holding my breath. You know, there was a time when I could, you know, take a deep breath and go down, (sighs) Maybe, you know, 30 feet, 50 feet, 60 feet. I never made it to 100 feet. Some people make it to as much as 500 feet, even 200 meters below the surface, a few well, you know, practiced individuals. But I want to go and stay. I want the privilege of being able to spend not just seconds or minutes, hours, even days. I I have lived underwater now on 10 different occasions, that is go stay underwater in a little underwater laboratory, a little underwater house, Um, mostly for science. I mean, again, it's the privileged few who get to do some of these really cool things. Not everybody has had the privilege of going on the space station either. But to be able to share the view of the gift of time and then using submarines, not just limited in terms of depth, I mean of time but of depth that you can go and spend hours far below where divers breathing compressed air or exotic mixes of gases can go i mean the human physiology really limits us even for the most athletic uh, humans to you know about 300 meters thousand feet even 500 meters for a few now actually in the oil and gas industry, laying pipelines, saturating themselves and staying underwater for you know days and weeks with a very long decompression to get the compressed gases out of their system so they can safely return to surface pressure. But in a submarine, one atmosphere, no problem. You have the same pressure no matter how deep you go as you have on the surface. You're just one atmosphere. So there's no decompression, no physiological strain. Kids can do it. Great-grandparents can do it. Jeremy can do it. I can do it. You can do it. <laughs> I want access so that we're taking, not worried about what kind of a body do you have, what kind of a mind do you have? We, we And yes, you can do this vicariously with the technologies that enable... Well, Bob Ballard calls it telepresence, remotely operated systems that take cameras and sensors into the deep sea. You sit on the surface looking at a television monitor, and sometimes you can drive the, sub, drive the little submersible, the little remotely operated robot. And it's great. Um, the company that I started, that my daughter and son-in-law now own and operate, that's Liz and her husband Ian, um, been around for 25 years, 26 years now. Mostly building robots. Mostly transporting people from the surface to do work in the deep sea as much as 7,000 meters down. That's you know more than half the ocean's depth. And working out you know with universities. The University of Hawaii has one of these systems looking at the deep sea mining area before mining occurs. But to go personally, there's no substitute for actually being there. We need all of the robots we can muster. We need these vicarious experiences. We need to share the view, the way astronauts share the view of their experiences in space. But, you know, we're, we're getting to that point. Well, in fact, we're already there with respect to going seven miles in the sky. I often take a window seat despite the discomforts of flying, you know, crushed against the window. But I get the view of the world below. To fly over over the North Pole, to see the melting ice in Greenland, it's worth being in a window seat (laughs) to be able to have that experience. Okay, but you can't offer that kind of experience to very many people going into the ocean. I want to open that up. I want to have submersibles that are fine tuned so that anybody can drive them. That's part of the joy, that you take the controls, you drive the submarine. There are three people in the design that we have, or that, that does exist, ready to start you know, cutting metal and moving things forward to develop a pair of these systems to be (sighs) made available to the broader community of people who need to see, who want to see, what it's like below where divers can go. Now, the little subs that we dream about doing would take about a year to build from the point that we now are. It would probably take two years if we were starting from scratch, but we've been working on this for a long time, and especially in the last year, to fine-tune what it will take to move forward quickly with clear spheres and to be able to go not just like the tourist submarines that are now beginning to take people out on big yachts that are great, that getting getting people... To see for themselves what the ocean is like. But we want to go further. We want these to be meaningful explorations so that a 10 year old can take the photographs, make the observations, bring back information that is put into a database that we've been developing with ESRI, the GIS gurus based in Redlands, California, that working with the nonprofit that. I started 10 years ago Mission Blue that Jeremy has referenced with hope spots around the world protected areas or are places that need to be protected but f- we need to explore them and energize the communities and champions and and to be able to really get people to understand again you have to know we want to take people there and and inspire them armed with knowledge and to put this information In this common framework of images, stories, data shared around the world. We now have 131 hope spots around the world, and more in the works, so that we have this network of hope. But we need to fill in the blanks. Most of what we know about those places, it's within diver depth, a little bit in a few places using remotely operated vehicles. And in a very few places, like the Mariana Trench, which is one of the hope spots, there's growing information because of the new technologies and those very privileged individuals who've had a few expeditions into the deepest parts of the ocean. And that information available through this ESRI framework, what did you see? Uh, How many of whatever it is you saw are there? What was the temperature? When did when did light disappear? When did you start to see bioluminescent organisms? These are meaningful expeditions, but they're also opportunities that we envision to have people who just want to go and do what all kids want to do. They want to explore. They want time to look around, to be inspired and to be creative. I I don't know what it is that got James Cameron hooked on the idea of going deep, but I think it had something to do with getting to know life in the ocean and seeing how amazing it is. But it doesn't stop at 10 feet or 100 feet. It goes all the way to the bottom. Ultimately, I want to go with submersibles built of glass. That's the ultimate deep search dream. But meanwhile, within the year, if we could raise the funding to build a couple of little one-person, thousand-meter subs, not one person, three-person, to be able to travel the world, visit the hope spots, gain knowledge, gain information, and inspire people, share the view, I, mean, I can't tell you exactly where all this would go, but it is intended to go from where we are. To get to a better place, to recovery, and ultimately, literally to that point where people understand and respect the ocean for more than just a place to take fish as food or take fish as products, but to get to know them as extraordinary fellow citizens on this little blue planet. Dr. Doc, know-
3: Earl. Uh, were you gonna say something, Jeremy?
1: go no, please go ahead.
0: Please go ahead.
3: Uh, thank you, Dr. Earl. Uh, thank you for uh, for such wise comments and and information, and I'm definitely a big fan and you know appreciate you sharing this time with us. Um, in kind of looking at your story, I think my passion for the oceans came from trotting some similar territory growing up in Florida and spending my summers in the Caribbean and Haiti in particular. And you, can't mm. help, and you can't help but just have a connection for the ocean and all that's in it. And when we look at the amazing work you did with Mission Blue, you really did an excellent job of pointing out how much we've depleted the oceans of, of fish and seafood. Um, and to the point where you yourself, I believe don't eat seafood anymore
1: Sea um, life. No, I don't.
3: <laughs> I know exactly, too much. <laughs> exactly. C-life. And so would you be able to share uh, with the audience some ideas you have around how we might be able to substitute our, our current sea uh, life intake uh, with, you know, some alternatives, you know, any kind of practical views on that? And you know, I had a conversation with our mutual friend, Enric Sala who's also been working on preserving large parts of the ocean, but you know, obviously we come into conflict with just our, our own consumption. So I'm definitely curious as to any ideas you have around that.
1: Right. Well, I can't help it. I look at the evidence and the evidence suggests we don't have a, a, a hope of continuing the scale of extraction of ocean wildlife on the scale we we currently are. There are a lot of people who would like to scale up. I say we have to scale back. And we have to look at the other values that ocean wildlife provides. When you think about it, and I think about it a lot, and I, I wrote about it in The World is Blue, how we transition from a time of valuing, well, birds, as commodities, uh, four and 20 blackbirds baked in a pie. You know? <laughs> we used to take egrets for their feathers. We took passenger pigeons for their meat until they were gone, all gone. And we've come perilously close to losing a lot of other wild animals on the land. But we began to see other values in birds. And so we began protecting birds, even ducks and geese that taste pretty good for most people. We realized that you can't take them in commercial quantities and still have ducks for anybody, for any numbers or for any purpose, whether you like them on your plate or in the sky or their role in the global ecosystem like fish in the sea, birds on the land. A part of this great nutrient cycle um, <laughs> um, spreading nutrients as they fly the great migratory roots fertilized the land and created the wealthy, amazing rich soils of North America that we have degraded steadily since we began cultivating displacing the wildlife and, and not enabling them to restore with their traditional flyways and their traditional numbers. I mean, the the, the buffalo similarly fertilized the land and, and did not, even though people took some, they didn't by any means get close to taking as many of those wild animals for their sustenance as 21st century humans are are trying to take from the ocean on a quote sustainable basis it's just not possible look at the evidence from 1950s to where we are even from the 1980s to where we are bluefin tuna in the Pacific is down to less than 3% of what they were the, the grown-ups of course you count the babies there are a lot of them to start with but they soon get eaten by everybody in the ocean love the baby tunas and only a few make it to be moms and dads in the future and and now we take them even before they get to be grown up tunas it's it's uh, anyway that's part of the problem um, looking at ocean life as commodities we made the transition with whales not as food not as commodities but as fellow citizens as other societies, if you will, with their language, their social structure, with intelligence. Ah, and as I learned at the World Economic Forum in January, or earlier this year, whales as carbon-based units, that they store and sequester carbon on a mega scale. They eat little fish, that eat the plankton, they capture the carbon, generate oxygen, maintain the biogeochemical cycles that make Earth hospitable. It's a living ocean. So I was so surprised and so delighted to see those, those crafty, number-crunching economists saying, we really need whales. Taken all together, whales are worth trillions of dollars to the global economy because of their climate connection. Huh. Well, if you can make a case for whales, why can't we make a case for tuna? shrimp, lobsters, cod, and all the other carbon-based units that like birds on the land, like buffalo on the land, like whales in the sea, they're part of the biogeochemical cycles that keep the planet steady. All right, well, realistically, we're not going to stop eating wildlife from the ocean tomorrow, and maybe not in the next 10 years. Eventually, we will when, like the wild birds, they're either gone or their numbers are so low that it's no longer worthwhile mobilizing to go catch them or because we've figured out there are plenty of things that humans can eat. It's not food security to take ocean wildlife, except for a few, relatively small number of people who live in coastal communities, island countries, We don't have the options that most people in most parts of the planet do, whether they're people who live traditionally inland and have always farmed and have always, until recent years, relied on animals they cultivate if they eat animals at all, and the animals they cultivate eat plants. We don't raise carnivores cost-effectively to eat on the land. We don't raise uh, uh, anything cost-effectively that that, that requires feeding them animals. You know, we are raising salmon, but it's really not cost-effective. Salmon are top predators. They eat fish that eat fish that eat fish that eat fish that ultimately eat those tiny little plants that capture carbon and generate oxygen. And it takes several years from an egg to make a salmon takes like six or seven months to make a chicken maybe a year to make a cow or a sheep certainly not a year most most sheep go to market when they're shall i say lamb we don't eat sheep we eat lamb we tend to eat young cows not not five or ten or let's think about some most of the Big fish we take from the sea are at least 10 years old. Halibut can be 80 years old. Orange ruffy, when we started taking them from the deep sea in the 1980s, nobody realized at first that they can live to be basically more than a century. Or the Chilean sea bass, um, not really, you know, rejected in the markets at first when the first. Fishermen went as far as the outer edge of Antarctic waters and began capturing these deep sea fish that take 15 years or so, 20 years to mature. and may live to be as long as humans, but they were just there free, you know? You didn't have to plant them or wait. They were just already there, like clear cutting an old growth forest. You know, you don't have to wait for them to grow up. They were already there They're they're old-growth fish, and we have skimmed those old-growth fish out of the ocean in the last 50 years at a scale that is breathtaking and is not renewable. It is not sustainable. I I don't know that we can see a recovery of these disrupted systems because they are just that, disrupted systems. You've rearranged the players. you've, You've got more of some and less of others, and you've thrown them all back into the mix and you've said, okay, go for it, recover. But it's not like you're starting from scratch. You're starting from a different set of players. And meanwhile, the ocean has changed. You've put all these strange chemicals into the ocean. You've put plastics that are now not just big chunks of nets and lines, but but breaking up into microplastics, and now even nanoplastics, that are microscopic, molecular in their scale, coming back to us when we eat oysters that filter the water, come back to us when we eat fish. That, you know, the, the microplastics and the, especially the nanoplastics just become incorporated in them. It's not the reason I've stopped eating ocean wildlife, but it's, it's a good enough reason for a lot of people like I don't want that stuff in me. Oh my gosh, what can I do? What can you eat? Well, James Cameron says, "Low in the food chain, go green." He made the leap. He, he celebrates eating, being becoming a plant eater, um, and celebrates animals that are like elephants and <laughs> cows and horses, big strong animals. Oh, there's nothing about Uh, nutrients that we're missing if we go go to a plant-based diet but okay so you want to eat animals look at all the choices we've got but go for eating plant-eating animals if you want to eat animals if you want to eat fish go for plant-eating fish like carp China's been growing plant-eating carp for a thousand years efficiently in little ponds and making use of every drop more crop per drop they say not not mining the ocean of 50-year-old fish that can't regrow. Completely agree.
2: Thank you, Dr. Earl. And I, I move for, uh, for us to eat just more seaweed. I know that you are the expert on seaweed and algae. <laughs> so I'd love for us to put more of that on our plate as well. Um, Thank you for sharing that. And, and Jeremy, um, I know you wanted to step in and then I wanted to open up for questions. And I know that there are a lot of people in the room that are huge fans of Dr. Earl and wanted to come up uh, with comments and, and questions. So, um, yeah, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I just, you know, I, I would like to kind of, uh, yes, as, as Elise mentioned and, and Jock, I'm so grateful that you guys put this, uh, this room together for Dr. Earl and um, you know, one of the things that I really kind of want to add to, to what's already been said is that, you know, in the 1960s, you know, children were glued to their television sets. They were fascinated with the fact that we were going to this place, this, this new, uh, this, this celestial spot called the moon, and they watched it with bated breath, and yet when our astronauts got to the moon and they walked and they said those first words as they stepped there, they did something impossible, but yet they didn't encounter any alien beings. But traveling to the deepest part of the ocean is just as difficult, if not more difficult, yet there is life down there that we have even yet to discover. And this is why I think it's so exciting to be able to talk about Not just these submarines and be able to go down there, but years ago when I first met Sylvia in Paris at the Paris Agreement, we had a discussion briefly about this little place called Cabo Plumo, and there was no fish, there was no life, Uh, the apex predators were gone. But the fishermen, the locals, everyone had joined together and they said, you know what? We're going to make this a sanctuary. We're going to stay out of the Mission Blue made this a hope, so, hope spot. And, Silvius, you said you dived there 15 years later. And when you dove there 15 years later, what did you see?
1: It was like diving 50 years ago. Literally. The recovery, it, 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 you know, wasn't quite like it was when I was a kid. But the re- recovery... Was, was was breathtaking, and no one was more what I, I think surprised in a way. They were hoping, but they, 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 they just couldn't really believe that it was happening. The fishermen themselves, who have now really developed a mostly uh, diver, tourism-based economy, a little tough with the current crisis with the pandemic, but it's there. It will draw people back. But even without the tourism-based justification, the fact that places given a chance can recover, they won't be the same as they were, but they'll be a whole lot better than they otherwise would be if we had just continued doing what we were doing. I think about how Europe today has recovered largely after World War II, but it's not the same. You know, one would dream of saying that, you know, there are things that are forever lost. But the pieces are reassembled and there's it's a different kind of healthy system, but it's prosperous. And that's what's happened. That's what happened at Cabo Pomo. And it's happening all over the world where we show restraint, where we just let nature alone. In fact, there are are efforts where we try to have our fish and eat them too, managed areas, where we say, well, we'll just take some. And, yeah, we ought to be able to take some, right? Well, you have to think of the context. When the ocean was largely intact, and people in coastal areas took some, but not everything all the time, they could you know, maintain a certain level of, and I guess I can use the word, sustainability. But even so, it was possible to eliminate certain species unless they were careful. You can wipe out sharks from an area if you consistently take them and don't give them a break if you don't give them safe havens if you don't have places large areas where you really let the natural world do its thing like the, the rules we abide by in national parks for the most part yes we have roads in national parks but we don't kill the birds we don't cut the trees similarly think about it and I do think about right now the Galapagos Islands 97% of the land is fully protected really you don't step on the plants you don't kill a bug (laughs) you you, you don't harm the wildlife 3% is open for humans to occupy and that number has grown since I first visited there in 1966 when there were about a thousand people in all of the Galapagos Islands. Now the the domestic population is close to 50,000. So in that little group of islands, you've seen a times 50 increase. Around the world, we've only seen since the 1960s, like a times three. So they put a lot of pressure on the little bit of land that they've got. And they do rely heavily on outside sources for food. The one thing they failed to do when they protected the land was to similarly protect the ocean. Presently, about 4% of the ocean is safe for fish and lobsters and sea cucumbers and sea urchins and the other forms of life that humans take. They don't eat the boobies, they don't eat the iguanas, they don't eat the flightless cormorants or sea lions, but the ocean is open for business. That's about to change they are managing the area from shore out 40 miles, but they allow fishing there. That's what I say. It doesn't really work when you have managed areas where you allow. Uh, in, a, in an area, in, in a world where populations have overall declined so much, having these large managed areas, it, it just can't, it's, it's not working. It doesn't work. It's only when you really leave it alone you get recovery and as Enrique Sala is fond of saying you get spillover into adjacent areas if you treat these protected areas as fish banks protect the assets live on the spillover of the dividends you get maybe we can find that recipe but it's not like you save 10% and you fish 90% (laughs) I mean wouldn't it be nice if you could if you could treat your your bank account that way I'm just going to put 10% of my wealth and I'm going to spend uh, whatever comes in 90% goes out the door having a 90% lump and you spend 10% could work maybe it can maybe we'll get to that point we're looking for thirty percent of the ocean by 2030, maybe half of the ocean and the land by 2050, to really make you know come to grips with the reality that we're, we're taking too much of the natural system and we're not allowing recovery to take place, and we're just we're just eating ourselves out of existence but but knowing what we know. We don't have to do this. We have alternative sources to feed ourselves, even with what we're doing today. I, I pay close attention to food security because I like to eat. <laughs> and I see, mm-hmm. I see the world also likes to eat. And, and there are answers that don't require taking ocean wildlife on, on a large scale
2: couldn't agree more dr. Earl um, we're actually doing work in the Philippines to transition uh, fishermen and women to organic produce farming there's so much to be done around the protection of greater areas of of our oceans um, and I know that as a uh, sturgeon general you're <laughs> a big prof- I love that term, by the way <laughs> you're a big proponent of um, of uh, you know, protecting protecting these these sea creatures so thank you
0: well well sylvia we've kept you long enough and um we're going to continue to brainstorm on this because we really want to help you um this is a it's a very important issue and i know it's very important to you and you know earlier i just want to touch on the fact that you had talked about galileo and other uh great science heroes as you mentioned and i think we can all agree in this session that you are one of our great science heroes and I definitely think that your contribution to the world most people would agree with that statement so thank you so much for, for coming oh, tonight well, thank for you being...
1: <laughs> try to live up to a fraction of that thank you doctor <laughs> really li- like living hero
2: Shiro. <laughs> Shiro. Shiro. <laughs>